Hey folks, and welcome to episode 165 of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series that we began on episode 157 on the Jacob narrative. This time, after a little bit of recap, James Jordan, our scholar in residence, is going to go into the background of Isaac and Rebecca. We really hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this time of teaching. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Last week, we were still introducing the Jacob narrative and looking at Genesis 24. And we were in chapter 24, verse 62. I think before we go back and read that last section, if you look in your notes, Roman numeral 6, Isaac and Rebecca, Genesis 24, we can kind of summarize the chapter, which if we'd had an extra 18 minutes last week, we would have done last week. And then look again at the last part of it. The themes that I'd like for you to notice in this narrative, remember that what we saw is in Genesis 24, Abraham calls his servant, Eliezer of Damascus, who was one of his home-born servants. And the home-born servant is a man who was adopted as a son of the house by the ritual of having his ear bored. That's later on in Exodus, but the equivalent thing existed earlier. And Abraham had said earlier that this man, Eliezer of Damascus, would have inherited. He would have been the heir if God hadn't given him a son. And he goes to God and he says, am I never going to have a son? Because right now, Eliezer of Damascus, one adopted in my house, is my heir. He's the chief of the adopted sons. Everything indicates this same man is the man who goes and gets the wife for Isaac and is willing to do everything Abraham says, even if Isaac hadn't been born, he would have inherited everything. But now, this guy's like Jonathan. Jonathan is such an amazing character because when he meets David, he realizes that he's not going to have the kingdom David is. He puts his garments on David and says, you will be the king. Jonathan yields everything that he had as crown prince to David, does so willingly. This man yields everything he might have had to Isaac. And Abram sends him out to go to Mesopotamia, to the land of the two rivers, the double rivers, and to get a wife for Isaac. And he says, the angel will go with you. And we saw last time, and this is the first point here, the angel goes before him when he leaves the land where God's house is. You already have the idea here that Abraham's sanctuary with the oasis is always an oasis, a well of water and an altar and trees. Later on that becomes in the tabernacle, the labor of cleansing, the altar and the building itself made of boards. But you have this oasis sanctuary. When you leave that, angel will go with you when you come back. Later on, when Jacob leaves, angels leave and go with him and help him when he's in the land of Laban and come back. Until he comes back. And of course, later on, when you go into the Exodus from Egypt, then the angel goes before the people. And the great stress on that, the angel will go before you and lead you into the promised land. So, this theme is here. 
In a sense, we live in a better time now because there is no longer any wilderness. In a sense, the entire world now belongs to Jesus. But in a general way, it'd still be true that if you went from a Christian land as a missionary to a non-Christian land, you could count on this, that the angel will go with you and protect you while you're there doing what needs to be done. If you had to go to Saudi Arabia, for instance, a land totally given over to demonism and occultism and Islam, which are pretty much synonymous, you would be happy to know that angels will go with you. Then we saw that the man comes and he's at this big test. He's got ten camels with him and his servants. And he says to ask for a miraculous sign of who the right chick should be for Isaac. He says, whoever comes out here and offers me money and then voluntarily offers to get water for all ten of these camels, that would be the girl. So he runs into Rebecca at the well. And we always run into wives at wells, don't we? Who else meets his wife at a well? Jacob meets his wife at a well. Meets Rachel at the well. Who else runs into a wife at a well? Moses. And who else winds up in a conversation about marriage at a well? Jesus. He meets this woman at a well. He answers for water. That's the same thing. And instantly they start talking about husbands. She's had five husbands. Now she's got another guy. Jesus is the true husband. He's number seven. And just as all these other husbands meet brides at the well, that same idea is there. Especially in John. That's where this shows up. And in John, everything has these super broad symbolic meanings that relate to the Old Testament events. Well, the woman is a well of water and there's a bunch of symbolism there in the law and other places that we won't unpack. But the business of meeting, you meet your wife at the well and there's association between the well of water and the children that come forth and all this. Then another thing we notice is that the servant is now convinced so he goes back to Laban and her brother. And her father is there on the scene, Bethuel, but he doesn't do much. All the conversations are with her brother Laban. Because in the patriarchal or family clan structure of the ancient world, and I think you'd find this is still true in America, it's the older brother who watches out for the younger sister. Or, I guess, if you got an older sister but you're old enough to do the watching out, it's the brother who watches out for the sister more than the father does. I remember seeing there was an episode of this program, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Have any of you ever seen that? It's a funny show and generally clean. There was an episode where the young teenage girl was going to go out on the date with the guy. And her brother and her cousin, who are main characters in the show, have heard that this guy she's going out with is a rake. They spy on her the whole time. They catch him outside. They tell him they're going to beat him to a bloody pulp as he lays a hand on their sister. The father doesn't know this is going on at all. The brothers go into it. Of course, on this program, this is made real funny. But that's how it is. And that was pretty formal in the ancient world. You actually negotiated with the brother for the hand of the sister. We'll see later on in the Jacob story, right at the end of it, that when Dinah is raped, it's her brothers, Simeon and Levi, and Reuben, who go and negotiate for her marriage, and then take advantage of the situation by massacring the people in Shechem. This is sometimes called fratriarchy, ruled by brothers. That's not what's going on. 
It's just that within the clan, it's the brother who has a special relationship with the sister. Where else do you see this in the Bible, where a brother has a special relationship with a sister and avenges her? Yes. Absalom and his sister Tamar, and he murders his half-brother Amnon because he raped Tamar. So, that's what's going on here, but there's something else to notice as well. When they negotiate for Rebekah, or Rivka, as we can say it in Hebrew, they send her away as a sister. That's the stress here in verse 55. If you're using your shocking Bible, it's on page 105. But you don't need to turn here, just listen. He gave presents to her brother and her mother. The servant did. Her brother and her mother said, let the maiden stay with us a few more days. The father is there, but he's not involved. It's the brother who is doing the negotiating. And then it says in verse 59, they sent off Rivka, their sister, their sister. It's as if she's everybody's sister. But the important thing is, they didn't send off Rivka, their daughter. They didn't just send off Rivka, Rebecca, with her nurse. They didn't send off Rebecca, their daughter, with her nurse. They sent off Rebecca, their sister, with her nurse. And Abraham's servant with his men. In verse 60, they gave Rivka a farewell blessing. Remember, blessing is the same consonant as Rebecca. Barak, Rabat. So if we could, we would hear this resonance that Rebecca is a blessing. She will turn out to be. They gave Rivka farewell, Barak, and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousand myriads, Rabava, again a pun with Rivka. Our sister, may you multiply. Here again, Rebecca is a female Abraham. Abraham was going to multiply, now Rebecca's going to multiply. Your sister. They took their sister, they gave away their sister, so that in this marriage, You've got to understand this, or you don't understand the story that happens next. Rebecca is adopted as a sister first, and then she's married as a bride. This contract, this is all a marriage contract, this marriage contract means that she becomes a sister to Isaac, and then she becomes a bride. You have this in the Song of Solomon, don't you? My sister, my bride. Who was the first sister bride in the Bible? Eve. First the sister, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. That phrase, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, means brother-sister. It doesn't mean husband-wife. That will come up in our story as well, when Laban and Jacob talk that way to each other. First of all, that expression means brother-sister or brother-brother. And then married his bride. Abraham was married to his sister. Now, next week, I anticipate, we'll see that when Isaac is in Gerar, he tells Abimelech that Rebekah is his sister. People say, oh, he lied. No, he didn't lie. She's sister first, then bride. There's reasons for that. Which of these relationships is permanent and which is temporary? Sister is permanent. We'll be sisters and brothers in heaven. But we won't be husbands and wives anymore. That will fall away because we'll all be married to Jesus. But the close personal friendship and bond will always be there in heaven. So the sister relationship is in a sense more fundamental. Brother-sister is more fundamental 
than the husband and wife, and it extends to eternity where the marriage and giving in marriage doesn't extend to eternity. Sometimes people feel like, well, I don't want to be in heaven and not be married to my wife anymore. Well, in a sense you will be because you'll have that brother-sister relationship that's still there. Go ahead. Yeah. I'm not ready to comment on why the nurse is mentioned here because, as you say, that's an important factor because the Bible doesn't tell us when Rebecca died, but it does tell us when the nurse, whose name is Deborah, right? I think that's right, that she dies. So it's common enough for the nurse to go along with a young girl. And this is a young girl here, maybe 16, 17. And so her nurse would go with her. And of course, what well-known Shakespeare play, you still find the nurse in a close relationship with the girl. Closer than her mom. Romeo and Juliet, of course. See? Juliet's in trouble. She doesn't go to her mom. She goes to the lady that worked with her and brought her up. You'd see that lots of times in the Old South, where Aunt So-and-so would be the one who spent a lot of time with the kids and would be closer to the kids than mother. And I'm sure that's true in many cultures where the mother's got, in aristocratic cultures, where the mother's got her own life and is out doing her own thing. It's the nurse who develops a close relationship with the children. Anyway, she gets to go along. So the sister theme is going to be important, and I needed to mention it here, that this is actually adoption of the sister as well as marriage of the wife. And the difference between having a sister wife and having a plain old wife is the difference between a full marriage and a concubine marriage. And this is a full marriage. It involves gifts and the transfer of money back and forth. Whereas in concubinage, you would pay over money to the family but the wife herself would not be adopted as a sister and would not be given lots of gifts. But Rebecca is given loads of gold and silver and stuff at this point, which is her money. And she will live in her own tent. And she and her husband will get together whenever they want, but they didn't have big houses back then, and she'll actually have her own tent with her own stuff in there, just like he has his tent with his stuff in there. And she'll have her own little miniature household. Well, the things that we saw in this story are qualities of the matriarch I have down here. First of all, purity. There's a stress on the fact that she had kept herself from other men, that she was a virgin. That's symbolically important in the Bible. We're told in Revelation that the followers of Jesus are virgins. They're pure in their relationship with him, and that's pointed out here. I think for the religious and moral overtones of it as much as anything else. We've seen a second characteristic is generosity. He's very generous. These strangers come along, he's happy to give water for them, happy to be generous to animals. These are all the kinds of things that Adam and Eve were supposed to do in the garden. Let's take care of the animals. We have an extreme side of that today in environmentalism. But the Christian standpoint would never be to exploit and degrade the animal kingdom, but always to shepherd and care for it. Hospitality is another important quality that she shows here. Another important quality is that she is immediate and very swift in her response to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. As soon as she's married, remember they said, don't you want to stay here a few days? or maybe even a few months, 
say goodbye to everybody. And then they asked her, will you go with this man? And she just said, Aleh, about as short as you can make it. It's let's go. She's ready to go. <laughs> Maybe she didn't like Laban and wanted to get away from him. Possible. We saw last week that Laban is very interested in all the money that this family seems to have, and that anticipates what we'll see about him later on. But she's very quick, and she's quick to obey. She has a desire to join with God's people. And finally, the theme that she is a female Abraham is shown in her willingness to leave the old land. As soon as God came to Abraham and said, I want you to go, he said, okay. And the same thing happens here, and the emphasis on blessing and multiplication, all the other things here, serve to put her in the context of Genesis as now another Abraham coming in to the situation. There's a sense in which the story of Abraham and the story of Isaac are almost inverted. In the story of Abraham, Abraham is the active person and Sarah is passive, except when she gets mad about Ishmael. In the Isaac and Rebecca story, it's almost the other way around. Rebecca is the one who takes matters in hand to preserve the covenant. And Isaac just doesn't seem to be very much involved with stuff. That's probably an exaggeration, but there's something to be said for it. We also saw that there were anticipations of Laban's later behavior, that he is very attentive to all the wealth he sees. He is desires to keep the wealth bringer with him. Why doesn't the girl stay with us? In other words, why don't you and all your caravans full of gifts stay with us a few more days? Maybe you'll give us some more gifts. But when things don't work out his way, he says, okay, you win. He doesn't fight about it. And we'll see that later on, too. He pursues after Jacob, and he wants to get Jacob back and you know, steal more from Jacob. And then God appears to him and says, you better not. And he says, okay, okay, okay. He wouldn't call this true evangelical faith. <laughs> it's not like he's personally involved with Jesus and wants to serve him. It's just that when God shows up, he's too shrewd to get into a fight with God. Arms too short to box with God, so he doesn't. Now, I just want to finish up this story, the last part of it. A couple of other things to notice here now that we've reviewed when Rebecca goes away. And now this last scene, starting in verse 62, I'll read starting there. Now, Yitzchak had come from the approach of, that would be a better translation than where you come to. Yitzchak had come from the approach of the well of the living one who sees me, for he had settled in the Negev. The well of the living one who sees me, or in your Bible, if you're looking at another translation, you may say, Bear Lahai Roy. That's where God appeared to Hagar and Ishmael after they were driven out in chapter 16. And you'll remember the water ran out. The old water that Abraham had provided her ran out. The old water ran out. When the old water runs out, you either die or you get new water from God. That's a theme. Same thing happens with the Exodus in the plague. All the water turns to blood. All the old water turned to blood. It says if they dug around, they got new water, they could drink it. That was a sign to them. In the case of Hagar, the old water had run out, and she left her little boy under a bush and said, I don't want to watch him die. And she went, and then God appeared to her, showed her a spring of water, 
gave her new water, kingdom water, gave her the Emmanuel promise, I will be with the lad. And she was blessed. And she named the place, the well that God showed her, the well of the living one who sees me. God sees me. God is watching over me. Now what's interesting is, of course, Ishmael has moved on. He's not living there. Hagar and Ishmael didn't stay there. Isaac goes and lives there. I don't know exactly why, but that is going to be stressed a couple of times here that Isaac is living in the place where God appeared and blessed Ishmael. Ishmael represents the Gentile world that's going to be blessed through Isaac, and maybe that's why he goes there. Or maybe that's why when he went there, Joseph, the Holy Spirit writing this, chose to stress that that's where he is. But it's just something to notice. It's an interesting theme in the text that I'm not quite sure exactly what to do with. So verse 62 again. Yitzchak had come from the approach of the well of the living one who sees me, where he settled in the Negev, that's a more desert area in the south. may not have been very deserty back then, though. Remember, this land had bears and lions and other things in it back in those days, and it was a land that flowed with milk and honey. You go to Israel today, and it looks like a wilderness throughout. It's all dried up. So does Greece. But that's just because you cut all the trees down, and then the land dries up. And the Sahara Desert didn't used to be there either until they cut all the trees down, and it turned into a desert. So I think the land of Palestine wasn't much of a desert, and the Negev is part of the area of it, and there was a well there. And Yitzchak went out to stroll in the field around the turning of sunset. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, camels coming. Now notice how this is written. The way this is written, you're standing there with Isaac. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, camels coming. The way this is written, it puts you right there. Camels are coming over there. Wow, bunch of camels. Some rich person, camels are expensive. Uh, camels are the Rolls Royces of the ancient world. Ten of these things. Then all of a sudden we shift perspective. Rivka lifted up her eyes and saw Yitzhak. So she's on the camel. They're getting closer now. She sees there's a guy. She got down from the camel and she goes over to the servant who's not riding on a camel. See, the camels are all loaded up with stuff. And she says, who is this man over there that's walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, That is my Lord. And she took a veil and covered herself. So now we're in her perspective. She sees him coming. Nice poetic writing here. Now the servant recounted to Yitzchak all the things he had done. Yitzchak brought her into the tent of Sarai's mother. He took Rivka and she became his wife and he loved her. Thus was Yitzchak comforted after his mother. That's an odd way for this story to end. And I want to make some comments on it. First of all, she wasn't veiled the whole way there. You go to the Near East today and these Muslim women, they just covered up from head to toe all over the place. That is not what was going on in the Bible. She didn't wear a veil ordinarily. She put it on when she got face to face with the man she's going to marry because they had exactly the same custom then that we have in our culture. That very often, not so much anymore, Bride walks down the aisle to be married. She has a veil on. The husband lifts the veil when he gets to kiss her for the first time. Or when the service starts. You're not face to face until the veil is lifted. The veil is the symbol of the barrier between the man and the woman, which is removed at the marriage. And that's also true 
with us and God because the veils in the sanctuary in the tabernacle are ripped in half when Jesus dies on the cross and those barriers between us and God are removed and the wedding feast begins. So those veils, whether it's a veil on the face of the girl or a veil on the tabernacle between us and God, signifies that you're betrothed, okay, but you're not yet married. She puts this veil on at this point because now she's in the presence of the man that she's going to marry. It says, Yitzchak Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, Sarah, his mother. Now, Abraham is not living at this place, but Isaac has Sarah's tent with him because that's the tent of the woman who is going to be the bride of the seed. And so you have to just understand the theology here and what they were thinking. They were thinking, well, Abraham, his time is done. Isaac has come. Isaac is the seed. He's the anointed one through whom the kingdom is going to come. He's going to carry on Abraham's work. And so we give him the wife's tent. She's dead. And when he gets a bride, she'll move into that tent. Just as Isaac is a new Abraham, so Rebecca will be a new Sarah. And so he's got the tent there. She goes into that tent and lives there. And then he marries her. And she becomes his wife. And he loved her. Interesting succession of phrases there. Usually you think it's the other way around. He fell over there and he married her. But he grew to love her. If he hadn't wanted her, she'd have gone home because arranged marriages in the Bible are not situations that are forced down children's throats. But he thinks she's just fine and he comes to love her. Then it says he was comforted after his mother. The story starts off with Abraham sending the servant out. Nothing about Abraham at the end of the story. Some people said, well, Abraham must have died while he was gone. That won't work. Abraham goes off and has another life afterwards. But Isaac needed another female counterpart. His mother had been that. Now his wife is that. And again, it's the idea of succession. You have a succession of Adams and Eves. Now we got Adam, now we got another Eve. That's that preliminary story, and then very just very briefly in chapter 25, verses 1 to 18, finish up the preliminary stuff, and maybe we can get a little bit into the actual Jacob narrative today. Section 7, Abraham and Keturah and Ishmael, chapter 25, 1 to 18. I'm going to read this through using our translation here. Now, Abraham, Abraham, had taken, it says. Well, that's because you can translate it that way if you want. We're not sure when this happened. I think that it happens after Isaac marries Rebekah. It's as if Sarah is still alive in principle until Isaac marries Rebekah and she becomes a new Sarah. At that point, Abraham's work is done. He's no longer the patriarch. He no longer has to be concerned about giving birth to the seed and arranging for the kingdom to come. He can retire from that, so to speak. Now he can take another wife. She's not going to be a full wife. She's not going to be a sister wife. She's going to be concubine. That is the second class wife. Full wife, not just somebody you're shacking up with, but not a sister wife, not an endowered wife. Named Keturah. That happens after Isaac Mary's Rebecca. 
So I think that we need to fix this translation a bit and say, now Abraham took another wife. Her name was Kedarah. She bore him Zimran and Yakshan and Midan and Midjan and Yishbak and Shua. Yakshan begot Shiva and Dedan. Dedan's sons were the Asherites and the Latushites and the Leumites. Midjan's sons, Ephah and Ephor, Anach and Abidah and Eldaah. These were all Keturah's sons. Sounds different when you read it with Hebrew pronunciation on it. But Abraham gave over all that was his to Yitzchak. And to the sons of the concubines that Abraham had, those concubines are Hagar and Keturah, Abraham gave gifts. And he sent them away from Yitzchak, his son, while he was still living eastward to the east land. There's no contradiction here. Verse 5, Abraham gave over all that was his to Isaac. And then it says he gave gifts to his other sons. Now, if he gave all that was his to Isaac, how do you have anything left over to give to the other son? Well, this phrase, all that was his, has to refer to the official inheritance. The official inheritance which the firstborn receives, and which is going to be real important in two more paragraphs. What does the firstborn get? He gets the official inheritance of the estate. Later on, under the law, he gets a double portion. I don't know that the double portion thing should be read back into this because we don't have the kind of divided up land situation that you had in Israel after God settled them in the land and set up the Jubilee law. But you've got something that is an estate and that estate is given to Isaac. If Abraham had 318 fighting men in his sheikdom, then their sons and their wives and all the rest of the servants are given to Isaac. And then they're passed on to Jacob. When Jacob goes down into Egypt, three or four or five thousand people go with him because he's got all these people that are part of his household. That's how you can get in 215 years two million people out of this, even with Pharaoh killing a bunch of them off. So that's all what's given to Isaac. But Abraham is a very wealthy sheik, and he also gives gifts to Ishmael and to his other sons. And I've just got a little chart here in your notes showing you the genealogy, and the thing to notice about this genealogy is Midian, or Midian as it's written here. The Midianites show up importantly in the Bible later on, and there are two groups of them. There's the good Midianites that Moses intermarries with, Jethro's Midianite, Moses' first wife, Zipporah, Zipporah, Chirper, she's Midianite Tess, and they're faithful to the covenant. They don't practice circumcision because they're not in the seed line. But they're believing Gentiles and they follow the faith of Abraham through their grandfather Midian and Abraham and Keturah. Then you got bad Midianites, like the ones who seduced the Israelites at the instigation of Balaam at Peor. So you got good Midianites and bad Midianites, and that's why the five sons of Midian are mentioned here. And the two sons of Yakshan, Sheba and Dedan, are mentioned because they show up later on in the Bible too. The queen of Sheba comes, remember? Dedan also shows up and these Asherites show up. Asherites, the name there is the same as Assyrians. Now the Assyrians are also another group of people, but you've got the Assyrians are a mixture of people here and they also have a relationship back to Abraham. In fact, it's interesting to consider 
that when God sends Jonah to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrians, that in one sense those people still have a relationship back to Abraham. And in a sense they're being called back to what they had known a thousand years earlier. So that's something to think about. I just got a note here about the chronology of this. Keturah's children would have been born about the time of Jacob and Esau. Since Jacob didn't marry until he was 84, we skip a generation for his sons, who would have been born around the time of the sons of, probably after the sons of Dedan. So you've got to skip a generation. So the thing that I'm saying here, this genealogy carries us down about the time of Joseph in Egypt which seems to be the terminus of the book of Genesis. If you want to guess who wrote Genesis, it's probably Joseph. Nothing in Genesis except for a few explanatory notes goes beyond that. Never does the Bible say that Moses wrote Genesis. That's like the three wise men. There aren't three of them. We don't know how many there are. We don't know who wrote Genesis for sure. My guess is Joseph wrote it and they had it while they were in Egypt as their Bible. In continuing, verse 7, now these are the days of the years of the life of Abraham which he lived, a hundred years and seventy years and five years. That's the way these are always given in the Bible. And each of the numbers then becomes important in terms of numerological scheme that we're not going to look at. Then he expired, and Abraham died a good ripe age, old and satisfied, and was gathered to his kinspeople. That's the way that's phrased. Yitzchak and Yishmael, his sons, buried him. In the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, son of Sohar the Hittite, that faces Mamre. We pronounce all these words differently, don't we? The field that Abraham had acquired from the sons of Het. This is the field that Abraham bought, and it's the first fruits of the promised land, the first place in the promised land that Abraham actually owned. And this is where they're buried. In death, they finally really enter the promised land. They don't dwell as strangers and sojourners in it any longer. And you'll find this emphasis in Genesis that so-and-so is buried in this place, this earnest down payment of the possession of the entire land that they have here. So he's buried there in the field that Abraham had acquired from the sons of Het. There were buried Abraham and Sarai's wife, verse 11. Now it was after Abraham's death that God blessed Yitzchak his son, and Yitzchak settled by the well of the living one who sees me. So there again we've got the statement that 30, 40 years later, Isaac is still living in this place, or he has gone back and chooses to live there in the place where it's associated with Ishmael. And then immediately we go to Ishmael. There's kind of a segue here. The well of the living one who sees me is Ishmael's well, where God appeared to him and blessed him. Immediately we go to the genealogy of Ishmael. I just want to point it out. We'll finish it here. These are the beginnings, or these are the generations of Ishmael, son of Abraham, whom Hagar, the Egyptian woman, Sarah's maid, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the son of Ishmael by their names after their begettings. Ishmael's firstborn, Nevaioth, and Kedar, and Abdael, and Mivsam, and Mishmah, and Dumah, and Massah, Adad, and Teimah, you pronounce every vowel, Yatur, Nafish, and Kedma. For once the accent's not in the last syllable. Twelve of them. 
These are the sons of Yishmael, these their names in their villages and in their corrals, twelve leaders for their tribes. And these are the years of the life of Yishmael, a hundred years and thirty years and seven years. Then he expired, he died and was gathered to his kinspeople. Now they dwelt from Havilah to Shur, which faces Egypt, back where you come from Assyria. In the presence of all his brothers did his inheritance fall. He lived in the same area as the other sons of Abraham by Keturah. All these people, Midianites, Jokshanites, all these different people lived in this area between Egypt and the Promised Land. That general area around the Promised Land and then Israel put in the middle of it. Remember that Abraham's brother Nahor, he has 12 kids. And Abraham, he has, well, he has one, and then he has one more, and he has six. But essentially, he has one that counts. And Ishmael, he has twelve. And Isaac, he has one plus one, and only one of them counts, and that's Jacob. And we come down to Jacob, and finally, he has twelve. Now, this is the theme that we find in the Bible over and over again of patience. And it seems as if God gives everybody else the things he's promised you and gives it to them first. And you have to wait. And Nahor, he already gets his twelve tribes way up here, and Abraham just gets one. And Ishmael, he gets his twelve tribes, and Isaac only gets one. And Jacob, he gets his twelve tribes. And as we'll see, Esau doesn't just get twelve tribes. Esau gets the whole kingdom. But the Jews don't get a kingdom for a thousand years. So, patience and waiting is one of the important themes here. God says, yeah, I'm going to give you all this stuff. And you see all these other people out here, I'm giving it to them first. But when you get yours, it'll come in time and it'll be better than what I'm giving them. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.